ourselves of this uh, great, great passage that speaks to the whole question of our assurance and the certainty of our assurance. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is the one to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But even in this, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all the creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this word. And now grant us your spirit. By your Spirit, even as we trust you have been here thus far, now by your Spirit, come and walk among us. And from your Word, encourage the hearts of your people, nourish their souls, feed them, strengthen them, give them assurance and hope. We pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Please be seated. We took a break uh, last week from Romans to reflect just a bit uh, upon the events that transpired in Aurora, Colorado, to try to gain some perspective uh, with respect to those things, just recognizing that an event like that can be profoundly and deeply unsettling. And one of the main points from our, our look at Matthew 24, 3 through 8, is, is that as hard as it is really to come to terms with this, these kinds of tragedies will characterize life until the return of Christ. I said last week that Jesus focuses on more global kinds of things, wars and rumors of wars and kingdom being raised up against kingdom and earthquakes and famines, not isolated events like this isolated event in Aurora, Colorado. And yet it's all of these kinds of things, all of these kinds of things that are going to characterize life until Jesus returns. And I said to you last week, we're saddened by these things. And we should be saddened by these things. You don't look at events like this and, and, and in some mechanistic, some sort of fatalistic way sing the song, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. That's not Christianity. That's materialistic determinism. That's fatalism. 
Christians don't look at tragedies and respond in that way. Christians, because they know that this is not the way things are supposed to be, look at events like that and grieve over them more deeply even than the rest of the world. I was struck reading that passage even last week from Matthew 24, struck by Jesus saying to his disciples, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of many will grow cold. Well, that doesn't happen for Christians. Because they've been delivered from wickedness. They've been introduced or reintroduced, however you want to think about it or configure it. They've been given eyes to see the harsh realities of life in this world. And they know that this is not what life is supposed to be about. They know that human beings are created for life and not death, for beauty and for joy and not for despair and brokenness. So because Christians see that and know that, they look at these things and rightly grieve and know sadness. And even as they grieve and know sadness, they do it with hope. See, Paul in, in 1 Thessalonians 4 says, we, we grieve, but not as those who have no hope. And what is the hope? Well, the hope is where Paul actually ends up his argument in Romans 8 before he begins to transition to the application, which transition is interrupted in chapters 9, 10, and 11 by his answering this question, what about the Jews? But the movement of the epistle from chapter 1 down to this place where we are is all laying the foundation of our understanding of the gospel so that beginning in chapter 12, he can start working it out in practice. He can, he can show us then what the imperatives are, what the requirements are, what the implications are given this foundation that he's laid in the first eight chapters. And here we are in this transition as he moves from the gospel to the application with the interruption of 9, 10, and 11. And where does he end up? He ends up in chapter 8 with these glorious Glorious words and ideas. The creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay so that it will know the liberty and the joy of the sons and daughters of God. See, everything is moving in the direction of that liberation. Everything. The conversation Friday night with some members, we had dinner with them in the course of that conversation this member of our church was talking about somebody he works with and, and this somebody he works with loves to fish and, and loves to surf. And this co-worker said, you know, when my body is done so that I can't fish anymore and I can't surf anymore, I'm going to take a gun and blow my brains out. And I couldn't help but say, I wish I could say to this guy, wouldn't you love to surf forever? Wouldn't you love to fish forever? What do you think the gospel is? And Paul says that it is in this hope that we are saved. The hope that the day is coming 
when the creation is liberated from its bondage to decay and enters into the enjoyment, the liberty, the freedom that we have begun to taste as the sons and daughters of God. Begun to taste it. We have appetizers. But the full meal is still out there in the future. And that is our hope. And it is in that hope that we are saved. That's where Paul ends up. His argument concerning the Gospel in chapter 8. Go back and read it. And so the big question is, Paul, I, I just am absolutely convinced that this is what's going on in his mind and in his heart as God, by the Spirit, inspires him to pen these words, write these words. He was a pastor. He loved people deeply. And he knew, I'm convinced of this, he knew what I know, and that is this. Every Christian asks the question sooner or later, at some point, at multiple points in your life, am I going to make it? Am I going to make it? Am I going to get there? This is the gospel, this is the hope, but am I going to make it? struggle is so intense sometimes. The temptations are so relentless sometimes. The battle with sin is so fierce sometimes. For some people, the persecutions are so relentless. Am I going to make it? And so Paul, as he begins to make the transition to the application, the outworking, the implications... He comes back to this thing. He wants to press home for these Christians who are living in Rome. He wants to press home for them the assurance that they can have in the midst of the battle, in the midst of the fight, in the midst of the brokenness, the struggle, the difficulties, what the confession of faith this morning, the Heidelberg Catechism referred to as everything related to life in this sad world. He wants to press home their assurance. And so he does it through a series of questions. These questions that we've read this morning, there are basically six of them. And here's the progression of the thought. Here's the progression of the six questions. They basically answer three questions. Will God's power fail? Will there be a power failure? Will God's purpose fail? Will there be a purpose failure? Will God's love fail? Will there be a love failure? Through these six questions, he's basically responding to those questions. Will the power of God be insufficient? Will the purpose of God fail? Will the love of God fail? In the first question you'll remember from several weeks ago he's simply asking people to stop and reflect and think about the things that they've heard think about this take this stuff meditate upon it reflect pray over it and seek to be your own preacher your own preacher to yourself what shall we say to these things stop think meditate that's question one and then question two addresses the first of the questions. You getting lost in all the questions? Probably. Question two 
answers that first question, will there be a power failure? And the answer is no. If God is for us, who can possibly be against us? Is there a power? Is there a force? Is there anything in the whole of the creation that is great enough to dethrone God, cut him off at the knees, sabotage his power? And the answer is no. There's no power failure. And then the next three questions in the text are a response to the purpose question. Will God's purpose fail? Can God's purpose fail? And questions three, four, and five in this text are a response to that question. Verse 32 He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who is there to condemn? Those three questions address the purpose question. Will God's purpose fail? What is God's purpose? To summarize the things we've been saying over these last weeks, the purpose of the Father together with the Son, which we'll look at a bit more this morning, is that they together should redeem a people for themselves. That they should deliver a people from bondage in sin. From being subject to sadness and grief. The Father gave a Son. This is John 17. The Father gave to the Son a people. The Son came into the world to redeem and to rescue that people. They were resolved before the foundation of the world that those whom they had loved, Jesus would come into the world to save. God's power is sufficient. Will His purpose fail? Paul is asking rhetorical questions. That's funny. I didn't script that. God did. I guess to make the point. His power won't fail. Because His power won't fail, His purpose can't fail. And we'll look at this whole question of a, of a charge being brought against God's elect and, and condemnation being a possible threat to God's people. We'll look at that again after I get back from vacation. But right now the question is, what about Jesus? God's purpose has been to redeem a people. He has given us His Son Will he not also with him graciously, freely, lavishly give us all things? Will God's purpose fail? Absolutely not. Let's just ask three questions of this particular question. What has God given? What else will God give and how will God give it? What has God given? Well, you know what he's given, right? He's given his son He's given His Son. Look, I know because, because I wrestle with this myself in the midst of struggles 
in the midst of this battle, in the midst of this fight, in the midst of this sad world. We want proof, don't we? We want evidence that God's purpose isn't going to fail for us. We've been tracking the experience of some friends, a a father and a mother. Uh, He was on the staff of our church in Orlando. Bev gave birth this last week to Timothy. Timothy was born with a blocked colon, often an indication of Downs. They did the surgery, they repaired the colon, and the indicators were spot on. So their little 10-day-old son is recovering from abdominal surgery in a hospital, and their hearts are exhausted as they think about little Timothy and the life that is laid out before him. Where, where is the proof, right? Where is the proof that the purpose of God is not going to fail in the midst of this sad world? Well, here is the proof that God has given his son. He has given his son. Think about that. This is Abraham. This is Abraham walking up the Mount Moriah. This is Abraham leading his son, the son of his love, the only son, true son, that he has. Son born out of the union with his wife Sarah, the son of promise. Isaac leading him up the mountain to bundle him up, tie him up, lay him on an altar, sacrifice him, give him up. This is Abraham walking up that mountain. I've, I've heard people say, I've heard parents say, I've had these conversations. Not many of them, but I recall several of them. Parents who have said, been very self-conscious about this and have said, we're going to have at least two children if we can. Because if we only had one and something happened to that child, what would we do with this love in our hearts? To what would it be attached? One of the most, I gave my wife a heads up about this. One of the most horrifying and emotionally, emotionally troubling scenes in all of film is the scene in the film which gives title to the movie Sophie's Choice. When Sophie arrives at Auschwitz, And the Nazi SS officer says to her, there's no room here for your children. They need to be given up. And to be given up means what? To be given up to death? And so Sophie pleads. And the officer relents. And the officer says, pick one. And that was her choice. That was the choice she had to make. To give up one in order that the other would survive. The 
You see what a striking and stark difference there is between Sophie's choice and God's choice. Several things, right? First, God's choice was not put upon him. He was not constrained to make this choice. But he initiated this choice. He took it upon himself to make this choice. And let's just remember, let's remember that when the Bible uses language like father and son, it is trying to capture something that is common to our experience. And by capturing that thing that is common to our experience, makes a profound suggestion of a reality that exists in the Godhead. The father loves the son in the way that a parent loves a child. Only there are differences, aren't there? Significant differences. Sophie's love for her child, any parent's love for a child, is two things. It is partial, limited, finite, and it is imperfect. But God's love is neither of those things. It is a perfect love, and perhaps even more significantly, it is an infinite love. This Father has an infinite, unfathomable capacity for love, and He finds in His Son the perfect object in which to delight and for which to have affection. The Father loves His Son. And there is no external force. There's no kidnapping. There's no vile, violent, Nazi, sadistic officer to require of God that He do something to fracture the love that exists between the Father and the Son. It is the Father who initiates this act. Remember Romans 5, 8. This is really important, folks, because we get some slightly distorted notions in our heads. Remember Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates, puts on display, puts lights upon, makes visible and evident and clear. God demonstrates His love for us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Whose love is put on display? The love of God for sinners. You see, He's the one who takes the initiative. He is the one who loves and who out of that love initiates this whole purpose to give His Son to be a sacrifice an offering for your liberation and freedom. Nobody constrained the Father to do this. The Father took this initiative and He did it. But here's the other thing. The Son didn't resist it. The Father initiated it. And the Son was glad because of His love for the Father. You see, in Jesus, you have the same capacity that you have in God the Father, right? We believe in a trinity, the tri-personality of the Godhead, in whom all of the attributes of God 
in each person are found fully. The Father has a limitless capacity for loving the Son. The Son has a correspondingly limited capacity for loving the Father. And the Father, out of love for you, gave the Son of His love. And the Son, out of love for you and love for the Father, submitted to the Father's design so that you might be rescued. There is no division in the Godhead with respect to these things. The Father initiates, the Son gladly responds. Read the Gospel of John. Jesus says repeatedly, I only say what the Father tells me to say. I always do what the Father instructs me to do. And my delight is to do the will of Him who sent me. We worked through some of this stuff at the refuge a couple of years ago. It comes to my mind as I'm mentioning this to you. Sounds like a terribly dysfunctional 30-year-old, doesn't it? A 30-year-old grown man saying, I'm only going to do what my father does. I'm only going to say what my father tells me to say. And my supreme delight is to delight in what the father tells me to do and tells me to say. We put people in counseling like that. We say, you know, you need to establish some boundaries. You need to break some ties. But you see, you understand the relationship that exists between the Father and the Son. The Father loves the Son. And you know what the Father loves most about the Son? Is the Son's love of the Father and the Son's delight to honor the Father by what He does. This is a mystery, the depths of which I can't begin to plumb. When Jesus is on the cross fulfilling the purpose and design of the Father, and the Father has turned the full measure of His wrath upon the Son for your forgiveness, for your freedom, for your liberation, and for the liberation of the whole creation, while the Father is venting that wrath and that anger upon the Son, He is at the same time delighting in His Son's radical And love-driven obedience to the Father. I'll put it in very stark terms for you. At one and the same time, the Father is hating the Son and loving the Son in a way that He perhaps has never loved Him before. There is no sense in which the Father and the Son are at cross-purposes. This is love. 1 John 4.11 Not that we loved God, but He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. He the Father loved. He the Father is the one who sent. He the, the Father is the one who gave up the Son. And He the Son did not refuse to come. And His coming And the Father's initiating is all born out of this limitless capacity for love which manifests itself so remarkably, so wonderfully in this God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit loving an unlovely people in order that they might in fact become lovely. God did this. God gave His Son. What else did He give? 
the text is really interesting. It's, it's fun. There's, there's a little preposition in verse 32, and it's rightly translated in the text, with he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? So many times in the New Testament, our relationship to Jesus is described by another preposition. It is the preposition in. I've mentioned this before so often, rightly, we describe the Christian condition in this way. We say, Jesus lives in me. We say, we have received Jesus into our hearts, into our lives. And that is true and that is accurate. But you know, don't you, that that sort of language is used only a handful of times in the New Testament. The vast majority of times in which our relationship with Jesus is described, it is described in this other direction. It is that I am in Christ. I am in Christ. That is where I am. And when I am in Christ, everything that Christ is comes with Him. Everything touching His humanity that is true of Christ comes with Him so that when I, and this is Romans 6 and 7, and you'll have to go back and actually to 5 and begin to piece this back together. When I am separated from, when I am disconnected from the old Adam, the old man, and I am now married to a new husband, connected to the last Adam who is Jesus Christ, I am now in Christ. That is the defining reality concerning who I am as a Christian. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, if any man is in Christ, new creation, new creation. A person who is in Christ, you see, has been cut off from the old. And now the new has come. That person has been connected to the new. And the invigorating principle, the central principle, the guiding principle for you as a Christian is that you are in Christ. That is what defines you. And what comes with being in Christ is everything else. What is the everything else? Go back to the verses that just precede verse 31. Those whom he foreknew. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he foreloved, having foreloved and having predestined, those whom he predestined, he then called. And you remember calling? You remember this is from weeks ago. You remember that when God speaks the worlds into existence? Non-existence does not say, I'm not coming. God speaks and things come into existence. Those whom He foreknew, He predestined. And those whom He predestined, He then called. And those whom He called, He justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. You see, the whole thing hangs together. The whole thing is like a string of pearls, you remember? You don't cut one part off of it and say, I hope I get this part with Jesus. You get the whole thing 
having been foreknown, foreloved, having been predestined to be like, to be conformed to the image of your big brother Jesus. God in time called you, summoned you out of death, out of darkness, out of a prison of sin and despair. He called you out of that. He united you and connected you to His Son. And He is now in the process of forming and shaping you after the image of His Son. That's why you can say that everything that comes your way, this is the text, everything that comes your way, this is the confession that we uttered together this morning, everything that comes your way is in the hands of the God who knew you, loved you, predestined you, is moving you in the direction of conformity with the image of His Son. It all serves that purpose. And the final outcome is your glorification. And that's the very person-specific part of it. The much bigger part of it is this. Yes, the outcome for you is that you look like Jesus. But the other outcome is your inheritance. The firstborn among many brothers. Yes, he's the firstborn among many brothers and sisters who enjoy the same status that he enjoys as heir of all of the Father's house. And not only that, there is an outcome with respect to this world in which you find yourself. And that is its final liberation from its bondage to decay. There is not one piece of that that will not be fulfilled for you. That's what Paul is saying. Having given his son, the son of his love, the son who loved you, the son who gladly came. Having given the greater and greatest, he will not deny you the lesser. It all comes together in Jesus. And how does he give it? He gives it freely. He gives it freely. Verse 32, again. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Graciously. This is incredibly important. Incredibly important. Maybe we'll come back to it in three weeks. Here's how we tend to think of the Christian life. God gets it started and I take over. God gets me in, i got to keep myself in. God works to get me there. I gotta to work to stay there. God gets me on the path. I gotta to work to stay on the path and work really, really hard so that I can get to the end of the path and cross over the threshold into the totality of what it is that Christ has died for. But you see, that's not the gospel. The everything else is given as freely, as graciously, as lavishly as is the gift of the Son. It's all boxed up, wrapped up, packaged for you, and offered to you. Apart from anything you have done, are doing, or ever will do, good or bad. Freely, graciously, lavishly given. Barb and I were sitting on the beach last night, and we were talking for a few minutes about this sermon. And I mentioned Kevin and Bev and little Timothy. And I was reminded as we were talking, and it 
It affected me. I mean, I just started to weep. I'm sorry. Couldn't help it. I was reminded of Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5. You know that passage. It's the passage beginning in chapter 52 and all the way through chapter 53 that describes the substitutionary atoning work of Jesus. Have you ever noticed this? Verses 4 and 5 of Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. He was punished for our iniquities. Here's the deal, folks. When Jesus died, he died for the whole package, not only to free you from the guilt of your sin, but to free you from the sadness, the griefs, the sorrows of life in this broken world. And when he dies to secure something for those whom he has loved from before the foundation of the world, there is not one aspect of that salvation that he will fail to give. And there is not one person for whom he has died that he will fail to save to the uttermost. Having given his son, the son of his love, who loved the father And the Father and Son together having loved you, the Father having given the Son, will he not also with him, in him, but with him, just as graciously give you the whole enchilada, the whole thing. Not one piece of it will you fall short of. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this great gift, this great salvation. Thank you for loving us with this everlasting love. And I pray for these, your people, that their hearts would have this hope, this assurance pressed deeply into the deepest parts of the fabric of their hearts. Thank you that your purpose will not fail. And we pray in your name. Amen.